You know, they see it as their best avenue towards resisting the vaccine. They see that the Supreme Court today is, you know, highly religious and striking down all sorts of laws that don't provide enough religious accommodations. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, January 10th. Today, Eric Gardner joins me to discuss an unusual lawsuit with serious implications for ABC, Disney, and Hollywood. A soap opera star was fired for refusing to get vaccinated, and now he's suing, claiming religious discrimination. He's not the only star to reject COVID vaccines, but this case in particular has sparked a debate about how the courts should grapple with the meaning of religion and politics in our society. Eric has all the details. And later on, Ben Landy and Julia Alexander discuss the reverse arms race in streaming as everyone from Netflix to Warner Brothers Discovery tries to reduce costs and cut back on content without pissing off their customers. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner, his first appearance on the podcast in 2023. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. Happy New Year. You too, man. Um, I learned something about Eric this week, which is that he's a huge fan of General Hospital. He's been watching it for years and years and years. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> he, uh, Eric has a piece on Puck that's fascinating. It's got a lot of legal implications for Disney, for Hollywood, around religion and politics and where sort of personal beliefs intersect with employment law. <laughs> and in this case, it involves one of the stars, now former stars of General Hospital, Ingo Rademacher, uh, starred on General Hospital 
And he was fired because he didn't want to get the COVID vaccine back in 2021. Eric, why was he fired by ABC Disney? And then what is his now lawsuit against the company about? Sure. I mean, Ingo has been very vocal about uh, not taking a vaccine. And uh, ABC had a policy that, you know, for the safety of his coworkers, everyone had to take vaccines. This was um, a protocol that was established when the uh, Hollywood's acting guild collectively bargained with the producers and they came to kind of an arrangement that if you were in, in the hot zone, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, you had to be vaccinated. Uh, or you had to be masked, but the problem is, if you're an actor, it doesn't really work well if you're if you're masked. So he asked for an exemption. Uh, he claimed that that this violated his religious beliefs, and that the that the uh, network was retaliating against his political beliefs, his his anti-vaccine activism. And uh, the the network interviewed him and, and decided that, no, this wasn't really a, a religious belief. It was something else. And so they denied his accommodation and fired him. And now he's suing. The religion aspect is interesting here. So he claimed a religious exemption and turns out he's not really religious. And then he changed his excuse to politics, saying that the network and, and the company were punishing him based on his politics. What does this lawsuit mean for just the general claim for people saying they demand religious or political exemptions from whatever policy a workplace is enforcing? Sure, absolutely. I think that this is the the thing that really drew me to the to the lawsuit. There's lots of COVID litigation right now. This stuff over insurance and 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 so forth. And from my standpoint, I actually don't see this as as a COVID story or even a vaccine story. To me, it's you know here's someone who professes to have some sort of belief, uh, and uh, is is you know making the case that to go against his beliefs is is, is somehow discrimination. It discriminates against him. Uh, on a religious basis, it, it retaliates against him on a political basis, and uh, you know the courts have really struggled with, with these sorts of questions, especially these days when the conservatives on the Supreme Court really encourage as much religious accommodation as possible. So, really, there was an, a you know a huge investigation by both sides in this case. You know, it, what is his beliefs? Do they correspond to to something that we can call religion? And you know, as far as as ABC goes, did they have any policies that that you know prevented him from being politically active? Is is that is that why he was fired, or was it for mm-hmm. a different reason? Mm-hmm. And and so you know both sides are, are you know making the case right now, and um, the judge is going to have to decide whether this is a tribal issue or not. And and if there is you know something uh, that goes to a jury, it, it could come as soon as May, and and it'll be a very fascinating case. So are there other examples in Hollywood or entertainment where Someone on a set who, you know, rejected getting vaccinated and was punished. Like what what's different about this case? Because it feels like lots of people in normal workplaces and everyday life in, you know, there's plenty of examples in the NBA of people not wanting to get vaccinated and they are either like suspended or maybe fired. But like, you know, why wasn't he just sort of like suspended rather than just like totally kicked off the show? 
Yeah, well, um, I mean, you know, it's possible that years from now he can come back. I mean, that's what soap opera actors do. They, you know, they spend a few years on the show. They kind of, you know, dissipate out and, and people forget about them and then come back. It's, you know, just like, uh, you know, uh, wrestling, professional wrestling, too. Um, yeah, I th- I, and he's not the only person to, you know, refuse to take a vaccine and then claim some sort of religious discrimination. There was another actor, I think, a few months ago, uh, Rockman Dunbar, who, who, came had a, a similar sort of case uh you know and i think that people are seizing on this religious discrimination claim because you know they see it as as their best avenue towards resisting the vaccine they see that that you know the supreme court today is you know highly religious and um you know they're striking down all sorts of laws that don't uh you know provide enough religious accommodation so they you know they're seizing on that and they're you know they're coming it the problem is that most major Major religions don't have anything that specifically says you don't have to, you know, take a vaccine. So, you know, what we have are, you know, these kind of like strange, non-traditional religions, the Church of Universal Wisdom or, or, or something that, that people come forward. And, and so there has to be a real kind of assessment about, you know, whether this is a religious belief or not. And I'm not going to say that this is the first time something like this has happened. Actually, I think I think this country has a very, very rich history of people coming forward and claiming that, that they have sincere religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite was a case a few years ago in, in the Tenth Circuit, where, where someone came forward and said he had a sincere belief that his religion commanded him to grow marijuana for the good of mankind. Um, you know, <laughs> these stuff happens. This stuff happens. You know, this, there were conscientious objectors during, during the Vietnam Vietnam War. There are, you know, vegans who say that that they can't take vaccines because, you know, it's grown, um, you know, from, from chicken embryos. I mean, there, there's um, some really interesting cases here. And this is this is kind of the latest, but I definitely think that this is going to become an even bigger, bigger legal hassle going forward just based on, you know, what's been happening in courts. So I assume the Federalist Society wasn't going to bat and filing amicus briefs for the guy from the Church of Ganja, but (laughs) are there conservative outfits, legal groups, whatever, kind of lining up in support of this lawsuit? We obviously know there's more mainstream conservative movements over the years, abortion, Second Amendment rights, certainly anti-labor activism that has made its way through the courts with the help of powerful attorneys or conservative interest groups, et cetera, et cetera. But are there like, quote unquote, religious liberty groups coming to Ingo's defense in any way? Not yet, but I think it's possible that if this case had traveled on appeal, that it would attract, uh, uh, you know, some some interested groups. Um, you know, one of uh, Ingo's lawyers actually is Robert Kennedy Jr., a famous uh, son of the president's brother mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, became an anti-vaxxer. Um, yeah, I think religious groups, religious liberty groups have been looking for, for cases to take up. Uh, you know, one case in particular from the early 90s dealt with a couple of people people who worked at a drug rehab center and they were fired after taking a hallucinogen as part of a Native American ceremony. And that went that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court held that, you know, a law's constitutional if it's facially neutral and generally applied, you know, meaning that it's the same for, for religious people as, as well as non-religious people. And a lot of, you know, religious liberty groups hate that decision. Hate, hate, mm. hate it. And so they've been looking for a case that, that they can bring to 
to the Supreme Court that that would overturn it the same way that, you know, say Roe versus Wade was overturned uh, this in this past year. So this is a very, very hot area. Uh, and I think that we're going to see a lot of these these sorts of cases. And, uh, you know, the law is going to be pushed uh, in, in many regards. All right, Eric, thanks for bringing this to my attention. And thanks for reminding me that General Hospital is still on sure. television. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, and I'm here with Julia Alexander. Hey, Julia. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm very good. I wanted to talk to you, since you're our resident streaming expert, because there's been this remarkable transformation that's happened at Warner Brothers Discovery over the past year or so, where David Zaslav, the CEO, sort of went from this conquering hero in Hollywood to one of the industry's villains, in a way. I mean, he became the face of these extremely difficult choices that people have had to make in terms of cuts to the streaming industry. And Warner Discovery, in particular, has really come at its own budget with a hatchet to pay down its debt that it has, basically selling off shows at HBO, dumping stuff off the platform. And then there's the whole deal that really upset people where Zaz straight up didn't release Batgirl, a movie that was essentially finished, and turned it into a tax write-off. But his chief financial officer, Gunnar Weidenfels, he made some comments last week that really stuck with me. He basically said, the entire industry has gone overboard on a spending frenzy. This, this was his quote. And he said, they've now rectified a lot of the content exuberance. I love this is like a very German way to put it. They've rectified the content exuberance. That just strikes me as obviously true. But I'm curious what you made of those comments and what other people in the industry make of those comments. We're approaching this moment where everyone who was kind of a gallivant in terms of like really defending streaming as the future, and by that I mean the economic model of streaming as the future, are being kind of faced with this streaming Scrooge moment where a lot of people, like you have Gunnar, you have David Zaslav, of course, you have others who are coming up into the sphere after now having seen this for the past few years going, I don't really know if this is necessarily the economic model that we want to bet on. And that comes with this really interesting juxtaposition, because on the one hand, linear is declining right? Cable is declining and broadband and 5G continue to increase, which means that mobile viewing and internet streaming will continue to increase. So streaming as the future makes a ton of sense. But what I think they're realizing is that this moment of the street being on our side and investors being on our side and being in this bullish market for the last decade that allowed us to really focus on development of several hundreds and thousands of television shows and films with absolutely no cost structure really to look at is coming to an end. And the best way to circumvent that is to do two things. You have to raise prices with your subscribers. And we know this is a fact. We know that streaming subscribers pay far less than cable subscribers. They're also not locked in. So while cable gets you for a year to year and it's, you know, the thing you don't necessarily think about canceling as often because it's such a laborious practice to do so. And it's just really tough. Streaming, the whole problem of it was that you can cancel whenever you want. You are literally in control of what you want to watch month after month. And so well, the one end is to raise prices. And on the other end is to look at your television shows and your films and do two things. You can argue that one, you are going to make a certain amount of money 
on a TV show up to a certain point, and then the returns on that are going to decline every year afterwards. So if you look at a show like Ozark, for example, a show like Ozark, you are going to have made the most you're going to make on that show. And it sits on your shelf, your digital shelf on Netflix. And the idea is, do you keep that exclusively? Or do you return to kind of traditional models of, syndica of syndication to say, well, we can make money on this elsewhere by licensing it out? You know, this is kind of this identity crisis moment that a lot of these streaming services, especially Netflix, are going to encounter as they look at it and they say, well, this is part of our brand. But if it's not making money, and if it's something that we could be making on elsewhere, what do we do with that situation. And then the other thing, of course, which is what Gunnar was getting at, which is spending less, spending less on having different types of TV shows and films that you might not necessarily need, spending less on the exclusivity side of things for streaming. And so I think when he makes these comments, they're all factually accurate. They're all 100% right. The issue is that it's coming from Warner Brothers Discovery, which right now is kind of seen as this villainous figure in the entertainment world. I'm glad you mentioned the pricing issue because it actually reminds me in a way of the similar sort of irrational exuberance that we saw in the rideshare market a number of years ago, where investors were pouring in so much money into Uber and Lyft, and they were just flooding the market with deals to grab market share. There really was this land grab that was underway for urban millennials. And, you know, people like you and me, Julia, our lifestyle in New York for years was subsidized by this flood of private market cash. And then, of course, you know, one day the markets woke up, the Federal Reserve pulled back, these companies realized they need to get serious, and suddenly the prices go skyrocketing. And now, you know, if you want to get an Uber or a Lyft in New York City, you're basically paying the same, if not more, than a traditional taxi company with a little bit of um, extra convenience. And I feel like that is essentially what's happening here as well. There was a land grab where all these companies, Warner Brothers, Discovery included, were incentivized to spend as much as possible, to create as much content as possible, to get as many customers as possible. And then all of a sudden they, you know, wake up one day as the market pulls back and realize, OK, this isn't sustainable. We need to do something completely different here. Right. The biggest issue facing streaming as it stands right now is that the level of churn, it, you know, sitting at, depending on which service you're looking at, you have an average churn of, of about 6%, which is higher than it was two and a half, three years ago, about three and a half percent, four percent, right? And then you look at certain services and they're sitting at 18, 19 percent churn. That's unsustainable, especially when you're charging five, six dollars for a subscription and your average revenue per user is much lower and therefore your profit margin is much smaller compared to the traditional cable side. Now, this is a bigger issue for the NBC Universals, for the Warner Brothers Discoveries, the Disneys of the world that can compare to their cable and linear businesses and say the profit margins that we saw there are not necessarily profit margins we're going to see in streaming in the next decade, if ever. Um, less of a concern for Netflix or Amazon, which isn't coming from that world. But at the same time, when you look at Netflix, the biggest question is that free cash flow. And Netflix has been all over the place over the last three years. And over the last couple quarters, it's been really rough and they're starting to go back up. And now they're saying, you know, 2023 will be the year of sustainable free cash flow for the company. But a big part of that is limiting the number of, of titles that they start to order. It starts looking into advertising. They start looking into live events that they can sell better ads on. They start looking into potential licensing their shows out. The only way to get to that point of the free cash flow, which they then need to order more content in order to stand out, and do other partnerships, whether it's in games, whether it's in fitness, whatever it might be, to expand their base, comes from this fact of kind of going back to the traditional. And I think that's what 
Gunnar is really getting at. It's this idea that everything that they thought made sense because everybody chased this Netflix model at a time when they were allowed to chase it is now coming back and they're realizing actually this is not necessarily the most profitable way of looking at things. And I think you're really going to start to see that question play out at its most, at its highest peak with sports, right? With this idea of if you are someone who is getting into sports rights and sports rights are becoming much more expensive and you're someone who is either, you're a Google or you're an Amazon and you're trying to really become one of the go-to destinations for sports and you're figuring out how you bundle that. If you bundle that, what do you do with that? You know, you're on the Disney side, you're on the NBC side. You're trying to figure out, do you bundle ESPN into a streaming package? You're figuring out, you know, how important is Peacock to the ongoing viewership and, and your profit for the sports side down the line? When the reality is, is that the, the amount of money that they're making on sports and cable, which is this tied in package, which effectively means that you have non-sports viewers paying for sports. It's this kind of thing that exists. That's really hard to replicate in streaming where churn is extremely high and the price of of sports rights is going up. And so I think if you take that aspect of what is going to happen in in, in the kind of media sector from the sports level and go down through general entertainment and look at that trickle down effect, you really get to this point where a lot of these companies, especially those like Warner Brothers Discovery with insane amounts of debt, have to start making some very difficult decisions. But as I wrote in a, in a piece for Puck a couple weeks ago, they're not going to be the only company that has to deal with this. They are just the fir- they are just they are just streaming's villain because they are the most callous in their kind of approach to it. But other companies will follow suit. Yeah, the sort of differentiated way that all these companies approach the same issue is really interesting to me. Obviously, as you mentioned, everyone is sort of approaching this from a slightly different direction, uh, whether it's syndication, whether it's pulling back on how much they spend on content, thinking a little bit more strategically about that. At the same time, all these companies have the same problem, which is that, as you mentioned, the price is probably too low. And there's sort of now like a, a reverse arms race where nobody wants to be the first person to raise prices a lot and potentially alienate customers. But all these companies recognize that on some level, they are going to have to either reduce the spending or increase the price. How do you sort of see that game theory playing out in terms of sort of the last mover advantage of raising prices? Well, there's two factors at play here. I think one is the argument about sentiment, customer sentiment towards a lot of these platforms. And it's an interesting question, right? This is something that I look into at my job. Um, I'm director of strategy at Paired Analytics. And this is a big question that I have with a lot of my, that my clients have that we try to answer, which is, when we talk about something like Warner Brothers Discovery or Netflix canceling shows, whatever it might be, does the sentiment toward those executive decisions trickle down to the sentiment towards the platform? Or to put it another way, if people are upset that Netflix keeps canceling shows, does that actually impact the amount of people who are canceling Netflix? And historically, the answer is no. Even when Netflix would increase prices and cancel shows, Netflix's churn rate was still one of the lowest in the industry, sitting at about 2.5%. And that's increased in the last year or so. But I would say that that has less to do with their decision to cancel shows and more to do with the fact that a lot of streaming services have a lot of good entertainment. Netflix is no longer the outlier in that world. And the pricing is on par with other ones like HBO Max and, and Hulu. It's actually more expensive than Hulu and Hulu's gotten much better thanks to its partnership with FX. So on the one hand, you have sentiment. It's really hard to say we're going to increase our prices when what people are consuming throughout the day is they're canceling my shows, they're moving my shows, they're removing movies, all these different things. Why should I pay more for it? So that's that's one side of things. But the other side of this equation really comes down to something that Netflix learned pretty early on, which is Netflix typically rose or, or increased its prices, I should say, in Q3, uh, Q1. The reason that they did that was because Q4 was historically their best 
period for really high profile content, both on the film side and the TV side. So the idea was people knew what they were coming into Netflix for, or they had signed up for Netflix and really enjoyed what they had been watching. And so Netflix said, okay, well, we can increase prices because people need to have the service. So they'll begrudgingly pay for it. But the idea, as they always use in marketing, was we're helping, you're helping us make more content for you. You like this type of content, you're saying we need to increase prices. That doesn't really flow as much anymore, but the reality is that it's true. They they need to increase those prices in order to make the level of content that they need to make in order to keep people happy. The difference is now that we're getting to a point where if people have Netflix, HBO Max, Hulu, whatever it may be, you know, they're coming close to hitting cable. And at that point they're going, well, I would go back to cable, except they're not big sports people, or these are general entertainment fans. And the best general entertainment is no longer on, on linear, it's on streaming. And so they're forced to deal with this issue of like, okay, well, which ones do I go back and forth? with month after month. And that gets to the original point of churn. So when all these companies look at having to increase their prices, which they're going to do, the big question that they have is if that lifetime value of that customer is cut in half and churn continues to increase, how much do you have to increase your price? And also how offsetting is that to people where they go, actually, I'm just going to pirate it. I don't even really need to do that. And so I think no one really has the first move advantage. Netflix has the advantage of being the most global and Netflix has the advantage of being able to uh, still point to the amount of shows that they're putting out. HBO Max still has the advantage of being able to point to HBO, but that's still, it's a very small subsect right of the audience. We live in New York and people listening might be in LA or wherever. And so HBO feels like everything, but it's a small subsect. Big Bang Theory is, is bigger than a lot of those shows. Um, and we don't really talk about that. So I think the question and the, and the answer that no one has an answer to, right? No one has actually figured this out. Everyone is trying to figure it out is how do you look at your slate? How do you program your slate for the maximum value that retains people and also acquires different subsects at a point that will then approach kind of the profits that we're seeing in linear? And absolutely no one has that answer. And if anyone says they do, that they're outright lying. Yeah, Julie, I think that's right. And I think at the same time, you know, nobody really knows how consumers are going to react to a world in which all of these incredible goodies that have been given to them are, are slowly sort of taken away. Um, I mean, we're really living at an incredible point in history where there's just such a glut of content at such an incredibly low price. Of course, it was going to be unsustainable, but we'll see what happens in terms of consumer behavior, which subscriptions they stick with, what people cancel as prices go up and the amount of content there goes down. But Julia, thanks so much for stopping by and, and talking to me today. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.